January 23rd, 2008, is a lot from Pedro's show.
Uh, Watch from Pedro Show. Uh, started off with uh, John Coltrane, live version of Cosmos, uh, live in Seattle. And uh, then we heard uh, Boston and Bombay by the Book of Knots. Uh, both tunes fitting because I'm here in San Francisco at Tiny Telephone Studio uh, recording with the Book of Knots folks. And uh, with me right now is Tony Maloney. Hey, everybody. And uh, the theme of this one, well, we'll get into the concept behind the Book of Knots period um, a little bit, but for this third one here, it's space. So that's why it's fitting maybe for having John Coltrane do Cosmos. Yeah. So, Tony, the Book of Knots, it's five years going now. And this is the third record. It's hard to believe it's been five years, Mike. It's like, Wow. I remember earlier today you asked me about it. I was going to say three and a half going on four, and then Matthias said five. 2003 was when we, uh, when we first started. I remember talking uh, to Joel and the Matthias about it back uh, up at uh, Joel's grandmother's house up on the Cape. Uh, Cape Cod. In Cape Cod. That's, like where, uh, that's where Joel and Matthias are both from. But they must have came out here at some time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Matthias came out here a few years ago after uh, he met Carla. And, uh, who's the fourth the, member. Who's the fourth member, yeah. Um, they're in the Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum, right. which, I mean, they're headquartered out here in uh, Oakland, I think, is where most of them are from. Um, and they're so, quite yeah. a troop. <laughs> Boy. Powerful. I played with the Missouri. They were traveling around in a school bus, and a lot of cats in that unit. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the the gig is kind of it's very musical, but it's also kind of theatrical. Oh yeah. Great band, great ensemble, whatever. Um, so you were talking about it. Yeah, we were talking Joel. about it, and uh, it's hard to imagine that that was five years ago, but it definitely was. And that first record. Um, we were thinking about like nautical themes, you know, boats and and the ocean and, and sailors and uh, hence Boston to Boston, Bombay. Yeah, Boston to Bombay. You know, it was uh, and and you know the Cape. You know, there's so you know that that there there's it's it's the most unique kind. It's the most unique piece of land. You know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. It, like the uh, the uh, the ecosystem in Cape Cod is like n- none other anywhere else in the world. It's basically like what the glacier left behind. Wow. So it's just like a necklace of right. of uh, of land going out into the sea. And uh, so those guys grew up there, both of them. And uh, Matthias's parents are both teachers, school teachers. So they got like thousands of books in the house. And uh, I remember Matthias bringing the Book of Knots oh, to wow. the studio. Out of time. Yeah, out of time. It's a huge book, and it's beautifully illustrated. And so that's kind of where the name came from. You know the Blue Jacket Manual? I don't know the Blue it's Jacket. It's a book they give you when you join the Navy as oh, a good. Here's list Matthias of Matthias right here. Yeah. So it, what is it? It's a, my pop gave me his. It's when they join you join the Navy, they give you this blue. This is the rules. This is what you got to learn to be a sailor. Oh. And so the first thing I looked for was where, how you tie the knots. But it was way in the back. First they teach you how to march and all this crap. Of course. But I got to the knots and I really dug that. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so 
you brainstorm this idea. We're going to make a, a, a unit around the sea. Well, it was like, we, we you know, it was... Uh, at, at first, I, I, it wasn't so premeditated, but then it became... You know, it just started to unfold like a lot of the things do with this group. It's like people start to, you know, as we like record things, they seem to take more and more shape. Yeah. We had that here. Yeah. I had the udon. Mine's uh, with the beef. Oh my God, here's like seven or seventy-seven. Here, here's here's a twenty. That's a love song, right? Seven and seven is. Seven and seven is do 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 do. Yeah, the, uh, pop song. Yeah, boop bap boop bap No bad beat. Yeah, no bad beat. Uh, but but anyway, four so, are the core. But then you bring in. Well, what we do is we ask Carla to come in and play on some songs and. Oh, so you, know, you three were the core. Well, that was the beginning, yeah. and then and Carla was just so. Well, she's like so powerful. It was just really obvious. Like, wow. Well, if she'll be in the band let's have her too but then so many people came like and John played, right came and played on that record that know, the whole idea of the book of knots now is it's much more like a kind of open structure like with you know the four of us or whatever but uh, I don't know like I think you know so many projects or bands have a lot of rules and regulations even though you know, musicians fancy themselves to be really free and everything. You know, there's tons and tons of issues oh, and boundaries absolutely. and stuff. So I think, like, with this project, you know, the idea was, like, let's try to leave things Let as open go. as we can. Also, because everybody works in the studio, whether they're recording all the time or whether they're engineering. And, you know, there's also another... That's another case where you've got lots and lots of boundaries right. and lots and lots of issues and lots and lots of thing, parameters that you have to work in. I think one of the things that we like to do here is like I remember on that first record Joel was priding himself on not tuning his guitar. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tune. Just going to let it go. And it just kind of a healthy like uh, reaction to having to you know toe the line yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. did you tune in between every take and so you know it's a this project's been an opportunity for people to really you know not worry so much about doing what's right and getting yeah. it to sound the way it's supposed to sound where, where did you meet them guys did you actually go out to Cape Cod well where I met Joel I met Joel on the street Ah. Like he was drinking coffee and we what, started Manhattan? talking. Brooklyn? Brooklyn, right around the corner from the studio. This was back when Joel was looking for a job. He had just moved to Brooklyn. Okay. And he told me about, you know, where he'd been engineering. And I could tell he was a super qualified dude. So I took him down the street to the Neve room. Um, and he started working there right away. And he worked there for a while. But he, he always kept coming by. You're the Udon. I think I'm the yeah. Soba. You know, I used to keep I used to keep coming by and saying, "Hey, man, you know, if there's anything I can do around here, let me know." And you know, I wasn't super busy; I was just starting out, and you know, I didn't didn't really need somebody else. But then, like you know, more and more work came, and then yeah. I was like, "Yeah, well, come on, do this, do that." And little by little, he just was there more and more. And then one day, he was just there every day. <laughs> You're talking about your past Studio um, G, Studio G, and like the band kind of came out of that. Ah, okay. 
So the studio came and he knew first. eyes from growing up. He did, yeah. They both they both grew up on the Cape, and then so I met Matthias through Joel. Yeah. And Matthias met Carla. He was on the road with Skeleton Key, and their van broke down. And the Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum bus came through the desert, and there's these dudes like you know on the road, flagging a ride. Wow. So that's how Matthias met Carla. Ain't that a trip? Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to do that first album? You know, we did, you know, we probably did three or four sessions, three or four days, like where we uh, uh, did basic tracks, just like that track that we just did in there where everybody was playing acoustic. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, we did... Never played piano before. Yeah, we did like 45 minutes, almost an hour of recording like that. And then we also did um, probably another hour of electric stuff. Um, so only three or four days, all them songs came out of that. Well, and then and then editing those, yeah. like you know, Sometimes. into into songs. It was like for sure a year. Yeah. Bringing sure. cats in, bringing people in, sending people stuff. Just like we sent you that track for the second record. Oh yeah, but I'll get that later. Uh-huh. We're still in first album. Right, right. But but the same thing. Yeah. Sending people stuff, seeing if they, you know, felt something, you know, for the track, and then. Getting what they recorded back and putting that into the track. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, because John uh, Macon's. Yeah, yeah, Johnny Langford. And uh, what did you just? Because you knew him from playing with him, right? I sent him the music on um, for three of those. Actually, two. Right. Okay. The hook. And uh, I mean, our captain's cup and back on dry land, and uh, you know, he, he told me he said he wrote those things on the way to the studio in the plane. You know, that guy, man, he's amazing. <laughs> he just went out there, and you know, I remember it was the morning, and um, you know, we had a couple of hours, and then you know, John had a show in, in town that night. Bing bang boom. Yeah, man. Wow. That guy drops it. Yeah. I really like what he. I really like what he did in both of the songs, but I love that that poem. You know, the captain's cup, and he's got that Welsh accent. It's so good. Yeah, and then Megan Riley's on it, and I play with her, and she had been rehearsing with us. She came walking through the room, and Joel said, "Hey, Megan, do you want to sing something on this on Frank's funeral?" She said, "Sure," and she just went out there and. Straight up, just improvised. Wow. couple takes, that's it. Did you explain the concept or she just went with You know, on that song, she was kind of left to her own devices. All right. On the other song, um, on Hook, um, I remember I wrote a few lines for her and, and gave her the idea... Of, I mean, just 
know, I, I, I've been reading this book about whaling, you know, and, and the guys going out on the whale boats. And uh, Joel's grandma's house is at the end of Old Whale Road. Ah. Um, or it's Whale Road. I can't remember exactly the name of it. But So I just jotted down a couple things on a piece of paper, and, and, and Megan just put it all together and improvised it. Wow. Yeah. Carla sings tugboat. Yep. What's the, what's the story about that? She basically takes on the character of the tugboat, you know? <laughs> you know? And, uh, and that was her idea? Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love some of those lines. Well, we're going to hear it right now, okay? Awesome.
from Pedro Show. Um, we just heard the Musk Deer by the Musk Deer. And before that, uh, the, uh, the Night Porter with 
Monkeys and uh, Night Porter is a band that Carl Boslich had. And everybody uh, put out good vibes to Carla healing up ones because some very troubled person punched her up in uh, very severely in Paris on the street in the weirdest kind of situation. But she's getting better. And then we started off uh, that chunk there with Tugboat by the Book of Knots. And that had this Carla. <laughs> Carla Different Kilstead. One. Right, Kilstead. Who's right now doing some overdubs right. on this third Book of Knot record. The Space Concept one. Yep. Uh, we got a song for you, man. Yeah. To spiel on. All right. Absolutely something, you okay. know. Okay. Then we should, Chuck go, Yeager. we should go to the music. How yeah. How do you feel like impersonating Chuck Yeager? Break the sound barrier. That's perfect for you, man. <laughs> do, you have any, do we have any literature on Chuck? Yeah, you should just be an astronaut. For real. Yeah. He was the only astronaut that never got to be one. I know. <laughs> you should be a, yeah, you should be a spurned, disgruntled astronaut. <laughs> Bitter ass. Like, basically, like, you know, seriously, like, angry, kind of spurned, like, patriot. Part of the space race that never got to actually. That got do spaced. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was the one that didn't get spaced. Alright, here's some music. Damn, your eyes have lost the ship. I, twelve days in the open launch adrift, we shunned the savage shores. Reduced to astral navigation through sickness, hunger, and hallucination, I recall one wailing captain sister's son and his crew drew lots that chose the lad to be the one though the captain offered himself twas to no avail and in the end used his own gun and soon too soon after this deed was done they met land and the captain wished instead that it was he who lay half eaten and full dead or at least unfed so fear not man we'll have none of that business here for we are British sailors and gentlemen, and if needs be, we'll die like them. There's naught to drink or eat. There's water, water everywhere. And all the boards do creep. Take courage, man, if all else fails. We'll snag some stupid seabird in the rigging of our makeshift sail and weigh its flesh on these delicate brass scales. To most fairly divided up. Drink its thick, warm blood from the captain's cup. the launch she clips and the coast is clear I see no ships and the sunset looks like a great pair of purple glowing fish lips coming over the horizon 
to gobble us all down Oh, for a sorry repast And belch your rotten stench Out on the last The last winds of the world from Pedro Show, um, Captain's Cup, song that John did with the Book of Knots. Johnny Langford uh, wrote that on the plane coming to the studio, had a gig after, yep. sandwiched For it real. in there. For real. And uh, yeah, what a trip. Well, hell, we're at the end of the first hour of the January 23rd, 2008 Watt from Pedro Show. Hold tight for hour two. Right on. Uh, January 23rd, 2008, the second hour of the Watt from Pedro show. And I'm here with Tony, and we're talking about the Book of Knots, since we're here at the Tiny Telephone Studio uh, doing uh, third Book of Knots. In fact, I've been just invited to do a rant on Mr. Chuck Yeager. That's going to be great, <laughs> I just heard the backing track, and uh, Book of Knots 2 comes out, and it's called Train Eater, and the concept behind that. Well, first... Did you ever think that Book of Knots was going to be more than the one record? Yeah, we always said from the beginning that we were going to do at least three records. And that the first one was going to be about uh, the nautical, the nautical, the sea, the, the sailing life. And then um, we didn't know what the second two were going to, the second and the third were going to be about. Um, anyway, we thought, oh, let's do one about Rust Belt. Because the first one nautical you know the cape Joel and Matthias being from the cape okay and Rust Belt hmm Sea Town yeah Pedro Pedro so we're like alright and uh, the train eater that I got a friend his name's Tom Sons. Tom took the picture that that we made the cover um, from for train eater what it is, is it's a blast furnace. Yeah. It looks like a Hieronymus Bosch painting. <laughs> really. And um, Tom took that picture um, right before they blew it up. And Tom told us a story. We were already beginning to talk about making the second record. And he told us a story about what they do. Now, that blast furnace that's on the cover of Train Eater... That's a blast furnace, old number six, out of uh, Youngstown, Ohio. And um, if you guys get the record, there's a song on the record called Trainier that Carla sings, and you'll hear what I'm talking about. But anyway, the whole idea with these blast furnaces, they never turn them off because once they fire them up, 
they go until they're done. And when they're finally done, what they do is they blow them up or they cut them up into huge chunks, weld them on the old train cars, and then push the whole thing, the train cars and the pieces of the blast furnace right into another blast furnace and just melt it down. So that's where the idea of train eater comes from. (laughs) And that's why there's a a picture of the blast furnace on the cover. Anyway, like, so all of these songs are really about um, people in the situation of uh, just decaying industry. Yeah. You know, kind of like where we're at even still today. Yeah, Yeah, it's not so funny. No, it ain't. It's a heavy trip. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so the, the topic's a little different from the first album. Was it made different? Well, um, some different folks. I know Watts on there. He wasn't on the first Watts one. on there. Uh, David Thomas um, sings on a song. Um, uh, John Langford is on again. Megan Riley's on there again. Um, uh, Alan, uh, the guy who does the lights for Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum, he did um, the vocals on the ballad of John Henry. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Carla Boslich is on it again. Um, Pedro. Yeah, and Rick Moody, the guy who wrote the book Ice Storm, they made the movie, he's on there um, with a a story that's really harrowing about a company town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Hewlett Smithson. How how did you run into him? Um, He's actually a friend of a bunch of people that have recorded Studio G. David Grubbs. Oh. And... uh, there's a whole crew of people that that we know of that we're all like friends. He actually lives in Williamsburg, so okay. small world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So that was all done at the G. Yeah, it was all done at the G. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, the Tom Waits track. Yeah. Tom actually wanted us to send him a four-track cassette. And uh, so we sent him the cassette with one of the tracks being just the backing track. And then he and his wife sang on two of the tracks, and he played guitar on one of the tracks. Sent you back the cassette. Sent us back the How cassette. How did you get uh, contact with him? Basically through Carla. Carla, uh, Carla was... Uh, Carla, you were doing recording with Tom, right, at the time? Uh, yeah, I've done a few things with him. I can't remember how that actually linked up with the... Like timing wise, but yeah, I was doing a couple tracks for um, his Bastards and Brawlers CD. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and he, I had given him a copy of the first record, and his son had told, I mean, they, they really loved it, but his son really, really loved it. So uh, he's, he, they, they were all excited to be involved in the second. Did you flow him a concept, or did you just give him the concept of the record? We, I don't know. Like, what did you tell him, Carla? Concept of the record. Yeah. That's it. Because that's kind of all I got. <laughs> you know? That's all and I was, I was just trying to parallel my that's town. All. And, you know, I've played Cleveland a bunch of times. My first maybe ten times of playing the town was on the flats. I didn't play no Cleveland Heights late, not until way later. It just works so great. Like, the way that all, where you say Cuyahoga over the flats. <laughs> and... Uh, 
and and uh, and and like a Wu face playing, you know, like that 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 Chinese. What's the name of that instrument that 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 uh, that Faye plays? She's an incredible Gu musician. Guzhong. Yeah, she Brooklyn too. No, I don't know where. I mean, when we met her, was she Colorado? Colorado that's right. Yeah, she's been really busy. Yeah, and I've played some of her stuff on the show. Incredible trippy music. For me, I don't really know that stuff, and it's beautiful. Yeah, damn wild. Uh, but. So everybody just gets the record concept. Nobody gets the script. <laughs> so like as it should be. Yeah, as it should be. Now we're gonna. So it was kind of made like the first one, just kind of expanded, maybe a little more. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the fact that we, you know, we did the backing tracks, kind of the same. Like it's a combination of people having like an idea, or even like a sequence. You know, like in a sequencer. Or like a definite melody, um, certain people bring ideas in, and then and then the rest of the people collaborate. And uh, I don't know; it's like a lot of the a lot of the way that the music comes together is just by listening to it, and uh, you know, people deciding that well, let's try doing this, let's try doing that, and a bunch of stuff kind of gets thrown at it, and then when Joel's mixing it. It becomes rather obvious, like what needs to get turned up, turned down, or what muted. Gets tossed. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, uh, like a farmer would tell you, if you want a good crop, use a lot of manure. <laughs> <laughs> and we're gonna play four songs here in a row from the second. Right, Coconuts. this first one, Red Apple Boy. David Thomas is singing on that. Right, and um, what's the trip behind that? Well, you know. We came up with the tune and I'm listening to it and I just thought, oh, David, David, David could definitely do something. We sent him the music. You know, he wrote that totally on his own, you know, yeah, yeah. and he actually recorded it at his home studio. Um, and I really like the effect he put on his voice. Yeah. It's really. And David Thomas, cool. singer Parubu. Yeah. My old, uh, my old bandmate. Right. Who's um, still putting up Parubu. <laughs> oh yeah. Like David's got a, um, he's, um. He's kind of uh, reinstated um, uh, his his label from back in the day. Um, it was called Hearthen Records. Right, right. And I think he's calling it Hearpen now. And I know, because I just read about it in the email, that David's also, um, you know, making uh, downloads available to people. People go to Ubu Projects, right, they can right. read all about it. But I know that he's going to release, he's going to put the Home and Garden record out on oh, that. Oh, wow. And yeah, so, you know, he's just trying to get stuff in, like people that are related, you know, have done projects with Perubu or with people from Perubu. He's trying to make it available. But um, I really like like what David does on that. And then uh, next we're going to have what View from the Tower. That's right. the Carla Boslich right. tune, man. She came in to do that tune. She was like, oh, really? now, now she doesn't do it at home. She comes into the G. She comes into the G, and she had it all like up in her laptop, and um, and so she starts writing it out, and uh, so we thought, well, yeah, well, go ahead. She's, I need to write this out. So we say, yeah, go ahead, write it out. So twenty minutes later, like someone goes in there, and she's still writing, like she's got like you know like pages, and we're like, well, on I'm, the road, yeah, we're like Carly, you know, it's like, it's like you know, the tune's only five minutes long. <laughs> She had like so much written out, and so she finally like you know I could tell she was like 
well, okay. <laughs> and um, she took her time doing it too, you know, because she had like, she had definitely had like ideas of how she wanted to do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we just took the time. Touches like that too. Yeah. These people have idea. Yeah, she definitely. Compared to some people who don't know anything. Like and, me. And the thing, and, and well, the thing, like us. And, and Mike, you know, like this track. Like, when you first listen to it, you yeah. know, it's a little bit, like, dissonant and, like, you know, the band's really loud. Yeah. And, but the thing is, if you give it, if you give it a half a dozen listens, you start to hear, like, especially, like, in what she's doing, there's hooks. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's hooks in, like, what she you does. Know. Like, especially after, like, the big, big bridge, like, where it gets really loud and it comes back in. She, she does some stuff, like, the cadence of her voice, it's so hooky. So um, there's that one, and then the next one's like the ballad of. You of like this because of the bass. Well, and also like, what's Alan's last name? Carla Wilner. Alan Wilner. The story of how he did this. I mean, now Alan's like not like a singer. You know, he doesn't like. You know, he's not like a front guy for some band. He's at the studio. He's sitting on the couch. We're listening to the track. There's no vocals on it, and so we're trying to figure out. Who's going to spiel on this? Who's going to do something? So I can't remember if it was Joel or Matthias, but someone said, Alan, why don't you try it? <laughs> and, and, and like, just go for it. He went out there and like what we're going to hear, it's a one taker. No punches, no revisions. Alan went out there and did it. Like just like what you're going to hear. Damn. Yeah, we were all pretty much he said well I can do it better I'm like no 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 no. you're done you're done you put a fork in it okay. well but the, about the ballad of John Henry yeah. as far as like between me and you and, yeah. and the bass yeah we were trying <laughs> to get steam drill sounds yeah. on the bass <laughs> and uh, I think yeah I think we did you drilled it we drilled it <laughs> <laughs> It's a rebel day, they say. I don't agree. It's a rebel day, they say. I don't agree. In the rest of the valley of the river of the night, I feel obliged to be dark.
drop.
squared it is three times root 74. That's close to the numbers 999 at the 83rd decimal place. It's in the third and a 111 and it's third at the fifth and the 777 in the Sioux City sits in its decimal place and it has its fourth with dot 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 dot. Who gives a shit? Do stop. Digital, digital, digital numerical core. As soon as we see the number three, it's really more like. The steam drill didn't bottom till nine. The steam tree 
Watt from Pedro Show. Uh, we just heard a bunch of songs there uh, from the second Book of Knots record, uh, Train Eater, and Tone went and uh, described all that to you. And now I got the uh, Book of Knot percussion man, stick man, Matthias Bossy. Yes, sir. Yeah, glad to have you aboard, Matthias. Thank you, sir. Now, we're still here in the tiny telephone studio in San Francisco. Hiding out from the rain. Yeah, it's raining. Sure is. There's a, la- a lake outside the hatch. I stepped in it. <laughs> and Ian told me a good technique. If you get your shoes soaked, stuff them with newspaper, and it draws out the moisture, because they're dry now. Yeah, you should have brought the yak with you, man. The paddle. I should have brought the Just boat. Have it, like- I flew in. Yep. So it was lame. Right. If I would have drove, the yak would have been here. I could have paddled my way out of that hell. I could have paddled around and searched for the set list, too, because uh lost that, so we're going to have to recreate that. Yep. But that's okay. Uh, I want to get into uh, how you got started with music, Matthias. First time I played with you was with Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum. Yes, uh, in Missouri. In Missouri, about five years ago. Yep. Six years ago. And... Obviously, you were playing before that. Absolutely. Yeah, I... Uh, you st- started as a young Cape Codder? I did, yeah. I, I grew up on the Cape with uh, Joel, the engineer, guitarist, multi-talented man in the, in the other room there. Cape Exactly. Uh, yeah, I actually started out playing the violin. Wow. I did. Age five. School? Yeah. I learned on the Suzuki method and got really good. So good that they put me in the orchestra and, yeah. g- and it gave me the notes... But I couldn't read because I I I, uh, I learned with like the apples and oranges technique. There were no notes. There. I don't know, I don't even remember what Suzuki technique looked like. But I got I got good at that. I had a good ear and uh, graduated to the to the regular orchestra with the other kids. And uh, I couldn't read any of the notes, so I sat there in the back with doing air air violin. Never even touched the strings. Mine. I didn't have. I love, That's right. That's right. I didn't have uh, a love for the violin. I used to get real nervous when I was a kid and being up there with that instrument. How'd you get on it? My parents decided, like, I see we have a young Paganini here. We need need this boy to be the next soloist. And uh, they actually got me a loner violin from... From my from our dear family friend Bob Wentworth, it was like that special violin that he had in his living room on a little stand on the bookshelf, and wow. I got it immediately and I covered it in peanut butter. Yeah, fuck that thing. Yeah, I just I don't know I don't know it just uh, and I love it now. My wife is a violinist. I mean, it's one of yeah. my favorite instruments, but it it never connected with me. So you left it. I did sometime in third grade. My brother's uh, childhood friend, Ned White, gave me an old Ludwig, vintage 70s sparkle drum kit. Wow. With the yellow sparkles with a mismatched blue sparkle floor tom. Was it his idea? It was his mother's idea. He had left, and it was in the basement, and uh, she hated the thing. It was all dusty and, you know, rat shit in it, and uh, she just gave it to me. I didn't know what to do with it. It had all these extra drum heads. I didn't even use the bass drum, so what I did is I, I had the floor tom as the bass drum. I would just whack it with my right hand with a stick. And, and pile all the extra heads on top of the, the head that was already attached to the drum. So I had this, like, Quaker Oats box, cardboard sound, and, uh, uh, and, and would play the snare drum. I, was, I wasn't very good at the beginning, actually. That was the, the, the start of my first band in third grade. We were called Damn. Lover's Luck. We you already did had a band. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me and Jordan Silverstein, my next-door neighbor. I actually sang, and he played the drums. He's playing your drums. He was playing my drums. Now, did this lady have a beef with your parents? Oh no, she was a good, she was a good woman. Because my that parents might have been a reason why she. 
<laughs> my parents were really supportive. I sat oh, up really? in the basement and they loved it. You know it. that thing you buy for yep. Christmas? Oh, somebody you hate. I know. I Drum know. set so the kid does yeah. the bam bam and drives him nuts. My parents loved it. Yeah, all right. I think they had withdrawal when I left at 18. You know, there wasn't any more banging. No, no, no. I started a band called The Moms. The Moms. That was really fun. You know, kind of uh, a couple of really beautiful horn players. Saxophone, an alto player, and a tenor player. And uh, I was in, in jazz college, I guess you would call it. So ah. I was learning all my legit stuff and checking out. Are you writing tunes? Yeah, I, that's when I started writing tunes. Wow. It's funny. I, I went to college uh, with little or no harmonic knowledge. Drum music is written across in a line, yeah, you know? Right. There's no pitches. So I had to start from scratch learning like my keys and my notes and my sharps and flats. And mm-hmm. uh, at that point, I, I really got into it. But I love in the piano. And I started to write tunes, but all I could do was write the melody, and I would bring it into my teachers and say, can you harmonize this for me? <laughs> and I'd say, oh, yeah, that sounds good, that sounds good. And then I realized, like, you know, bit by bit, I started, starting, uh, I started studying with this trumpet player named John McNeil from New York, and he taught me my, my chords and stuff right. and voicings on the Voice piano, it. and uh, that's when I started writing. And so is the moms doing gigs? The moms, were, we were doing some gigs in... Uh, in college, it was it was kind of a short-lived project. I started it towards the end of my college career uh, with a friend of mine named Jay Flower, who's a, a wonderful, uh, actually, electronic musician. He does a lot of laptop stuff. He's uh, he's kind of the right-hand man of a of a, an amazing composer who's from Boston and now internationally known, named Oswaldo Golihoff. Oh wow! He's been working with him. They just did this new uh, Coppola film. Coppola came out of the woodwork after ten years after not making a film, and yeah. uh, Jay's been been doing a bunch of film stuff and we always did like really kind of slow grooving atmospheric stuff i just um, yeah. kick back and lay it down in the pocket and we'd have these kind of he wrote very beautiful music but there were always some weird little like twists and turns and and and, and non-predictable <coughs> harmonic shifts I so you're in piano but you're not doing it in a band just composing <sighs> he actually wrote most of the music oh i didn't start writing on the piano uh until I don't know, probably five years ago. Okay. Uh, once well, I got out of, of school, you know, and I... I well, yeah. the sleepy time guys are on the West Coast. Yeah. So how do you meet them? Well, that's a long story, my friend. Okay. <laughs> it goes like this. I was playing in a band called Skeleton Key from yeah. New York. Yeah, incredible. And yeah, uh, we shared the same agent as Sleepy Time. Uh, we were on the, on the East Coast in New York, and, the, and they were obviously out here on the West Coast. Uh... Five years ago, a little more than five years ago now, she decided, oh, it'd be a good idea if you guys did a little package tour. Do the circuit, do the whole country. So we came out here, met him at the bottom of the hill on December 12th, 2007, and uh, totally hit it off, man. Just amazing people. Skeleton Key and Sleepy Time got along well. Very different bands, but uh, I think a great double bill. 2007. No, 2002. (laughs) That's right. Seven looks like a two. Between Moms and Mm -hmm. Skeleton Key, are you in bands... Uh, yeah, I joined a band in. I moved to New York after Boston. Yeah, I ran there and uh, I joined a band called Vic Thrill. This fellow named Billy Campion, who was the lead singer of a, of a, a fantastic sort of Talking Heads inspired underground East Coast band in the early '90s called the Bogmen, and uh, he had a resurgence uh, in the mid '90s uh, as Vic Thrill, uh, okay. total freak solo performer I joined him playing playing kit behind him and he would dance around naked in, in like you know 
cheerleader outfits and just <laughs> in small, small Naked in cheerleaders outfits. Yeah, small, small Brooklyn clubs. Yeah. And uh, so I was playing in his band for a while, Billy, Vic Thrill. Yeah. And then uh, I joined Skeleton Key. Okay. Uh, and we went on the road. It was sort of a uh, Mike Patton had put out. Sure. Uh, there, there was Skeleton Key had, uh, you know, in the mid-90s, when they first came out, they had this crazy skyrocket to fame. Yeah. Capitol Records. Yeah. And they just like got lost in the shuffle there. It yeah. was that weird it was that Jesus Lizard time where yeah. all these, these fantastic bands were being signed and by major labels and then no one knew what to do with them. I remember. So they released one record and it petered out and then uh, they kinda disappeared and the, you know, in that meantime they toured themselves into the ground and yeah. I joined uh in the resurgence. Uh there was a record called Obtanium that came out uh probably five or six years ago now. And I was out touring that record with them. When you're torn with Skeleton Sleepy Key. Time, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. That was that was the uh, that and was. So you meet those cats, and what? yeah, and then well, here here saw somebody waning and uh, somebody waxing. Well, we uh, spent Christmas down yeah. in L.A. Uh, in 2002. Stayed with uh, Michael with uh, with Jello and Buzz. <laughs> Uh, at, at the, oh, not the band Christmas. It was around Christmas. No, it was around Christmas in 2002. <laughs> Sleepy Time being from the West Coast. Jell and Buzz uh, from uh, Melvin's. Yeah. Jell-O we stayed the at their house, watched uh, The Thing, that Carpenter movie. Uh, yeah, they did something called Lard or something. Yeah, I think they did. So we were supposed to meet Sleepy Time on the 27th. A few days after Christmas, we were going to hook up in Austin for a show. And Sleepy Time, I mean, uh, Skeleton Key, you know, you know the deal. You don't pay, you don't play, you don't get paid. So you got to keep going. You got to sleep and feed ourselves. And so we had a few gigs on our own and uh, we're going to meet up with them in Austin. And uh, sure enough, driving out on I-10 through Joshua Tree, Scirocco Summit, actually. The guitarist falls asleep at the wheel in our old plumbing van, and we roll the fucker at 70 miles an hour on I-10. Go down into the gully between the east and west lanes of the highway. I think I'm dying. There I am. Like, oh my God, really? 23 years old? It's all happening in slow motion. The windshield's blowing out. The rocks are coming in and hit us in the head. And like, bah! We land on the roof. The car's still running. Oh my God, I'm alive. Unbuckle yeah. my seatbelt, take off running across the desert. Yeah. Oh, there's my sleeping bag. Oh, there's my bass drum. Oh, fuck, look, there's a guitar and my video camera. Scattered. And I thought I was paralyzed. Like, yeah. I, I was tweaked. Yeah, but you made so it. So, sure enough, we all made it. Split right. our onions, man. You yeah. know, I mean, it was like scary, scary, scary shit. And it's uh, the end of the band. No, sure no. not. No, we spent the night on Christmas in the in the emergency room, and uh, the next day call sleepy time and say, "By the way, we're fucked. Our van is crashed. Uh, what can what can happen?" So they rolled up in their bus and the right. picked bus. us up, loaded our gear in, drove out across country. We finished the tour together in the bus. Got really yeah. close. That's where I hooked up with Carla. That's where our love affair started. Yeah. And uh, later that summer, their drummer left. To get his PhD in political science at UC Davis, and uh, they wow. they held auditions. I came UC out. UC Davis, that's a veterinarian school. Yeah, well, I guess Maybe so. We got a, a poli sci thing. Yeah, <laughs> in, in the health of, of kittens. Yeah. <laughs> so later that summer, I came out and auditioned, and uh, sure enough, here I am in California. Wow. Yeah. Now, book or not, connect. Right. Exactly. Here, well, I I had just finished the tour in 2003 with the Melvins and Tomahawk Patton's band Skeleton Key was the opener for this little package deal called The Geek Show that uh, and we we came back from that tour in the spring of 2003 and uh, Joel and Tony and I had always been trying to uh, 
to get a, a recording project going over there at, at the G at, at their little their little clubhouse. Where'd you meet Joel? Joel and I grew up. His That's his right. wife. Uh, he's a cotter. Yeah, he's a cotter. His wife Rachel uh, was the was I, I grew up with her. I've known her since elementary school, and uh, her her best friend. I mean, her brother Nick was my best friend. So. And her mother is also a colleague of my mother, both being musicians. And uh, Joel, I, Joel showed up on the scene when I was probably fifteen. So, and he was already in bands, touring around uh, Glazed Baby and this band from Kansas City called Shiner, which were, were fantastic. And uh, I always look up to him. I was like, oh, wow, yeah, he's older than me. You know, he's probably ten years, eight yeah. years older than me. So I was still, a, still a kid, and. Uh, Really admire. Who invites your board? Well, not at that point, no, because no. I was like really obsessed. I was in the jazz land, man, and he right, was like right. total punk. No, rock. for this not. Well, no, we. Well, I, it was kind of, uh, and I, I said, Joel, you know, we, you know, later when I moved to New York, I yeah. started, you know, dropping by the studio, and we really started getting to know each other, and 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 playing and stuff, and I said, man, we should make a record at some point. We started. We started uh, hanging out at the studio. Our first couple shots fired in. Uh, in <laughs> I didn't want to tell you what the name of the band was going to be. It's going to. It's embarrassing. Uh, we. Uh, our first. Knots was a good name. <laughs> it's a great name. It's a great it's name. Uh, uh, <laughs> we started getting together in the studio, and our first couple things. It's like when we all get together in the studio. You have to fuck around for a day before you get rid of all the the, the shit, and then finally get to like. The seed, you know. We started playing like these weird fast tunes with odd meters, and it just wasn't happening for us. And then we 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 did we we did this really like slow dooming song, and we were like, "Oh, wait, this feels real good." And uh, I wrote some lyrics, some sort of nautical inspired lyrics, and then we started sending emails back and forth. And I said, "Man, let's just make a record of this stuff." We started making all these really slow tunes, yeah, overdubs here and there. And uh, somewhere in the middle of that, this fellow Maro Arambidi, who had a fledgling label in Austin, Texas, called ArcLight Records, yeah. stepped in and said, "Hey, you know, I like this stuff. Let me uh, let me put it out." And uh, to this day, it's still in print. It's yeah. doing great. You know, the first the first record, and uh, you know, we we just kept churning them out. We 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 meet very sporadically, right. probably a couple times a year. We meet for like four days and really you know bang it out, and nothing is precious. We. We hold on tightly and let go lightly, you know? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. We're going to play some music Good, here. please. Some Matthias Bossy music. All right, and, all right. And uh, we get done with it, you tell us about it, okay? Beautiful.
your uncle used them. Christ used them to build the ark with Noah. Stanley screwdrivers, the good old red, white, and blue. Stab yourself. Stab a house. You can build anything with a Stanley screwdriver. With a Stanley screwdriver, you're the boss. You're the president. Things go up easily. Stanley screwdrivers. Fanta makes you invisible. Oh God, the bubbles. Oh God, the joy.
All right, we just started off that chunk with a with a piece of mine called Lost in Wyoming. Kind of a melancholic lament. Not even a lament, a, a meditation on uh, the silence of the highways and byways of Western America, a place that we all know very well. Driving late night through the prairie. You're the only one up on the bus here behind the wheel and... Uh, Probably I-80. Yeah, exactly I-80. I-80's got gates. Yeah, I know. Turn back. Go to Cheyenne. (laughs) That's right. I always like that one. Rock Springs. Yeah. So that's from my uh, as-yet-unreleased solo piano record, something I've been doing for a couple years here, and uh, I never quite have enough time to to write more music for it. So at some point, I I will release that. Uh, Little little musings. Uh, After that... We heard uh, something from my absurdist commercial reel called Stanley Screwdrivers. Well, you got to explain to people what is a commercial reel. Well, I, I, I this I was. I think like, you're the first cat on the Watt from Pedro show to have uh, a commercial. All reel. right. Well, these are. Uh, my dream is to be transported back to 1954. I think the only uh, the only way that's going to happen is like well, actually when the apocalypse happens and a hundred of us are left in a bunker. I'm going to be the guy who. Uh, who does all the commercials for the radio station in the bunker? I'm obsessed with that. The uh, the 1950s uh, uh, a tone of optimism. So yeah. I decided to do a a, a reel of of, of commercials uh, touting various products. Uh, I just improvised them in the studio. We actually we did it for uh, the Book of Nots show last summer in New York at the Gramercy Theater. We had this big whole 75 minute loop of me just blabbering on and it was running the whole time and then the minute the songs were done we'd up the faders and and hope that we were in a in a, in a good moment so this is uh this stanley is for stanley screwdrivers and fanta your favorite soda and your Fun. favorite screwdrivers uh mo Stiano has just arrived friend of ours gonna play some percussion today hello mo hello hey, matthias mo. likes to babble that's one thing he's really great yes professional on <laughs> please explain his music so, the, so, well, it's more it's uh, higher elevation than Babel. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's that's right. It has a point. It has a purpose. <laughs> yeah. Next, we have uh, Ah the French, uh, which is uh, a, a piece that I recorded here at Tiny Telephone a few days ago for an upcoming uh, dance piece by the Joe Good Performance Group. No, but Wonder Boy. Yeah, it's called Wonder Boy. It's uh, it's in collaboration with the Joe Good Performance Group and this puppeteer named Basil Twist from New York. Uh, something Carla Kilstead and I did here at Tiny Telephone a couple days ago. This is sort of uh, one of the main themes of the piece, a very kind of whimsical slash melancholic uh, piece uh, that uh, illustrates this, this puppet's inability to take anything lightly. He's a, a super sensitive character that is uh, obsessed with beauty and darkness. It's... Uh, it's uh, Soon to be a wonderful piece. I think it's going up in June at the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. Uh, first and second weekend in June. That's called Ah, the French. That's, but I don't know. But we'll call it Wonder Boy. from SF Mama? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. They have uh, styrofoam grass. In the middle there, there's all these rolling hills. They built a parking garage underneath, and then in order to sculpt the landscape, they made the hills out of styrofoam and then planted grass on top of it. <laughs> And lastly, we have Puppet Show, the 
or you sense a theme ah, here. Yes, puppets. Yes, we love yes, puppets. That's right. Uh, uh, from this the, is with the Sleepy the Time, Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum's latest record, Inglorious Times, out on the End Records. It came out last May. And Joel? Uh, Joel recorded it here, actually. Actually, that track was recorded at Studio G in Brooklyn. But Joel has his hand in uh, producing and recording some of this record. Uh, kind of a... Uh, it actually came out of a, a puppet show that we used to do live on uh, on, on the Sleepy Time tours. Uh, Nils, the singer's mom, had a, had this old wicker basket of uh, like uh, these traditional like Swedish uh, mythological characters and I puppets. would uh, puppets and I would I would break them out in between and do this puppet show. and then eventually I forgot them and so I would go out and start to do like these commercial reels that I just played like these absurd monologues in between tunes and. The name Puppet Show just kind of stuck. Oh, okay. So, yeah. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big kind of Carl Orff, Carmina Burana inspired gothic waltz. Okay. Yeah. Okay, Matthias, thank you so much what? for coming aboard. Pleasure, man. Man, you are a renaissance man. <laughs> thank you, dude. Thank you. Pleasure talking Pleasure to you. Pleasure to serve aboard the book and Oh, man, it is an honor to have you. This man impersonated Chuck Yeager this morning. I don't know if you can believe it. Tell the world. <laughs> okay. Thanks, brother. Uh, January 23rd. Actually, it's 24th now. We're doing the show over two days. Uh, 2008. It's Watt from Pedro's show, third hour. And I'm going to play you part two of Jack Flanders in Dreams of India. It's funny. I travel halfway around the world. And here I am in the middle of India. And I'm still me. And I'm still lost. I could have stayed at home and watched a video. There's someone doing his prayers. That line from the the Bhagavad Gita. He who abandons all desires and acts free from longing, without any sense of possessiveness or egotism, he attains to peace. Peace. Desires, no peace. Peace, no desires. Doesn't seem fair. just sitting on a bench at a bus stop. But I'm not waiting for a bus. I'm just sitting. It's funny. When you think of all the places in the world that won't allow you to just sit still. Restless minds sure run this world. Every child comes with the message that God is not yet discouraged of man. Ah, the words of Rabindranath Tagore. Well, uh, it's getting dark. It's time to head back to the hotel.
I cast my own shadow upon my path, because I have a lamp that has not been lighted. Hmm, so true. But tell me, Mr. Tagore, did you ever ask, is this the way back to my hotel? I thought I knew where I was, but uh, I don't. I'm lost. Silence will carry your voice like the nest that holds the sleeping birds. It's getting dark. Oh, I, I can see the lights of the hotel up there. I think I can get there by taking this this little street here. Houses, trees. It's very peaceful. Strange, though. It, it's as though layers are being peeled away. I can see through the walls into the houses. Even the trees are transparent, glowing with a, a light that is so vibrant, so alive. People are walking toward me. I can hear their footsteps, but they have no bodies. They're just ovals of light floating above the ground. I hope I can remember this. Oh, it's gone. Damn it. You just can't hold it. I should know that by now. So, Jack, were you sightseeing? Uh, I guess you could say that, yeah. And where did you go? Well, I wandered about. I, I found a charming street not far from the hotel. Uh, and you? Business. What is your business, Carmen? Personal? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, tomorrow, Bombay? Yeah. I've reserved rooms at the Taj Mahal. Taj Mahal? Really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea you could stay there. Not the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal Hotel. It's in Bombay. I knew that. Well, you should know that. It's a beautiful old Victorian hotel built by the English. It has a view of the harbor and the gateway of India. You know, I notice there's a lot of English spoken in this country. That's because English is the official language of India, Jack. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Before the Mughals, uh, India was really many different countries, each with its own language. Oh, like Hindi, Bengali? Marathi, Punjabi, um, Gujarati, Tamil, Malayalam, Urdu. Urdu? Urdu is just one of the languages you'll hear in Bombay. Urdu. Kashmiri, Kunada. Canada? Kunada. Uh, Uriya, Sindhi. Okay, okay. Uh, Assamese. Okay, fine. Telugu. That's enough. Dogri, Maitali. <laughs> I give up, I give up. <laughs> Good grief. 
So the English occupied India for what? A couple hundred years? Yeah, in 1947, when the English left, the only ones who knew how to run the country were the clerks. And English was the one language spoken by all the clerks across the country. Uh-oh. So every state has its own language. The, um, in the south, for example, in Madras, they speak Tamil. In uh, the northwest, in Calcutta, they speak Bengali. Yeah. In Goa, they speak Konkani. Okay, so where are we now? We're in Bombay, speaking English, Jack. They certainly use their horns a lot in this country, huh? It's a wonderful Indian law. If you hit someone without blowing your horn first, it's your fault. Uh There there are no scooter taxis here. No, traffic's too fast in Bombay. Yeah, sure puts New York to shame. But Bombay's real claim to fame is that it's the film capital of India. Really? I think uh, India makes more films than any other country. Except maybe one, but no, I can't remember which one it is. Are the films any good? I think they're just awful. You know, they're a combination of, what would you, cheesy and repressed. You know, we Indians are, are very prudish. Prudish? Well, that's hard to believe. I mean, after after seeing photos of those temple carvings where, well, they're, they're very imaginative. Well, they were done a very long time ago, Jack. Oh, what caused the change? I don't know. It may be because we've been a conquered people for so long. First, the Mughals in the mid-14th century. And they were in power for 300 years. Then the English for another 200 years. Hmm. Oh, hey, look at that. They're playing cricket. Mm, I know. It's a national obsession. Certainly is a weird game. (laughs) Oh, the driver thinks we want to hear it on the radio. Yeah, for us, it's just like listening to the baseball game. Hmm. So, how did the English take over India? I mean, did they just invade? No, it was through the uh, East India Company. Have you ever heard of the Black Hole of Calcutta? Of course. I stayed in one of their hotels in Manaus. It's a chain, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Jack, would you like to hear the real story? I've always been fascinated by black holes. Well, the Nawab, who had just come into power, mm. felt that the English were just intruding into his affairs. So he rounded up some of them and shut them into a small room. Now, unfortunately, in the heat of the Bengali night, 50 of them died. Now, had it been 50 dead Indians, the incident would have been forgotten. But for the British, it meant uh, Indian treachery, it meant Indian cruelty, and it was just what they needed. So they played it up in the British papers and overthrew the Nawab, and the incident was the perfect excuse to take over the country. Even back then, they knew how to manipulate the media, didn't they? Oh, yes. So that room, that's the black hole of Calcutta. So, Jack, what do you think about the Taj Mahal Hotel? It's magnificent. Pera, either out? Yes. Abkipas, pink pelican beer here? Pink pelican? Yes, of course. Pink pelican, great. Two pink pelican, please. Immediately, ma'am. This is a wonderful lounge. All this wicker. And you can see the harbor. The Indian Ocean, the gateway of India looming before us, so peaceful. And right around the corner, the beggars are waiting to pounce. You know, I haven't seen any snake charmers yet. Just wait, Jack, you'll see them. You'll see the lepers, the snake charmers, sadhus on beds of nails. You'll see gurus and yogis, everything you ever thought was India. You know, 
I'm beginning to realize that that is a very small part of this country. Two pink pelicans. Okay. Well, Jack, bottoms up. Mm. Where'd they learn to brew beer like this? From the English. Oh, it's better than English beer. And it's cold. You know, in this light... My God, you're... You're just so gorgeous. <laughs> they say... The sun has his simple robe of light. The clouds are decked with gorgeousness. They also say, this world is the world of wild storms, kept tame with the music of beauty. <laughs> I see then you know our poet, Rabindranath Tagore. Well, not personally. I see. Well then, Jack, I'll leave you to yourself to wander Bombay. Well, any suggestions? Um, where to wander? Uh, you could take a boat to the Elephanta Caves. Hmm. Or, or you could hire a taxi and go to the Ajanta Caves, just outside the city. What, do you have anything else besides caves, I mean? I think you'll find them very interesting. Yeah, well... The Ajanta Caves have wonderful paintings with the story of Buddha's life. The Buddha? Yeah, Buddha, you know, was born in India. Well, of course. He preached his first sermon in Benares. Buddha's Caves... Mm -hmm. So I'll leave you? Uh, yeah. Have, have a nice uh, namaste. Uh, is there something more? Mm. Another saying just came to mind. It may apply to you. Oh? My heart has spread its sails to the idle winds for the shadowy island of anywhere. Hmm. So I'll see you then this evening for dinner. Oh, uh, of course. with Kamala. Why the Elephanta Caves, the, the Ajanta Caves, the Black Hole of Calcutta. A lot of dark holes seem to come up in our conversations. Many, many caves. How many? They say 35 caves. Uh, are they all filled with stalactites? Who they fill? Uh, you know, the... Uh, never mind. The Ajanta Caves are not natural, No. No. No, they're carved by hand. By hand? Into the rock. Hand-carved caves? Some caves very, very big. Many rooms. Some caves very, very small. This guy sounds like he's doing Peter Sellers. Some have steps. Many steps. Uh, carved into the rock? Yes. Some have pillars. Many, many pillars. Mm. Some have paintings. Many, many paintings. Yes. How do you know? Oh, I... Uh... Uh, never mind. Uh, Watch from Pedro Show. That was part two of Jack Flanners and Dreams of India. Uh, Jack on another adventure. And somebody uh, who actually knows about Jack and his adventures has, has witnessed a few of them. I got with me now um, Mr. Joel Hamilton, uh, who is uh, one of the Book of Not Meisters. That is me. S seeing that this is um, kind of a Book a Knot edition of the Watt from Pedro show. Uh, it's my uh, extreme privilege to welcome him aboard here. Well, thank you. 
And uh, he's going to track. He's going to do some doubles and triples. All right. All right. Now, uh, yeah, you, you can hear the book of nod in motion there. They're actually uh, they're they're recording without me. Usually, I'm the guy that's sitting he's, in front of the console the, the whole time. So, the so everybody's going to come in every thirty seconds now. While we're but I grabbed him away, <laughs> right? I grabbed you away because I wanted him on the show and explain to you how he got to be a book of nodder. How you, how, what's how did you get started with music? Uh, my dad actually played drums in a in a really bad band, some kind of like bar band sounding thing, you know. Was this Cape Cod? It was on Cape Cod, yeah. And uh, and but the band practice, right? yeah. There's a bunch of them, <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's all anybody does. Are you kidding me? On the Cape, when they're not out fishing, you know, they come well, in off the fishing boats, and what they do all winter is drink. In the cranberry juice and the what? Oh, that too. Yeah, exactly. They got the, the Cape name, Cod, right? Man, yeah. But so uh, all the instruments were in our basement. The band practiced in our basement. So I had the benefit of going downstairs and, like, you know, messing with the Fender Twin that I wasn't supposed to touch when the guys weren't around. And I got the benefit of a drum set and a bass amp and all this stuff was around. How old were you? Wow, man. I mean, from the time that I can't remember till, you know, <laughs> till I was probably 10 years old or 11 years old. But but I, I started hitting those drums as soon as my foot could reach the kick drum pedal from from the stool, you know. And then, yeah. I, then I picked up the guitar and I, I was in these my socks. And I remember, I'll never forget this, I was probably six years old. My socks were wet and I'm standing on a cement floor and I touched that Fender Ooh. Twin. And the thing brought me to my knees and I was like... <laughs> I'm going to master the fucking power that just brought me to my knees this morning. <laughs> Someday I'm going to hold that juice in my hand right, and right. aim it at other people. Like that thing just took me out. Yeah, I can imagine. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I kind of played everything. I didn't know what I wanted to play. But the, the big deal was when, when a friend of theirs brought over a four track. And I got into that thing at about 10 years old. Record? Was, yeah, man. And I was like, yeah. as soon as I recorded myself going, hey... And then I learned how to put it on the next track and go, what? <laughs> it was on, man. I was wow. like, wow, this is some shit here. It must have been an early one. It was. It was like a quarter-inch teak yeah. reel-to-reel thing. And that's man. another thing I'll never forget, man. That, that changed the whole course of my life right there. I don't even know the guy's name that left the four-track there. I don't know, but it changed everything. It was a very uh, critical donate. It was a critical donation. <laughs> but so anyway, like I got kicked off in, into the whole like music thing, but coupled with the recording thing, it was not just about playing. Yeah. I always wanted to play something into a microphone. I was more interested in that than even the whole touring thing. But I did all the kind of like punk band, like touring in vans that smell like feet that we yeah. all know. Did you do any school Music? I did, I did. I played upright bass in school, oh. and uh, I played uh, uh, the snare drum, you know, sort of like drums in the symphony type of thing, which is just like some crappy, like, flamming once in yeah. a while. Event-driven. <laughs> yeah, it was event-driven <laughs> drumming. Uh, Not time-driven. Not time-driven. <laughs> but uh, Rock told me that. He says, yeah, I can play drums. I was in the school back in all the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't have to. You don't have to. You got somebody, like, wiggling a stick at you anyway to keep time. But, uh... But so, basically, it was like coming up through the kind of anti-music scene, you know? It was like coming up through everything. I mean, I'm sure at some point, like, three-way tie for last was on the cassette deck in the the fucking van, you know, or whatever. (laughs) But just like that stuff was all what we cared about. 
You know, it wasn't like I mean I like Van Halen as much as the next guy, but it was that wasn't ever what I wanted to be. You know, at any point, I I felt like there was there was something that I needed to say that was unique. Like the the idea was to be myself the entire time, not to model myself after any one particular. Yeah. You know, I didn't look at uh, you know some guitar hero guy like I say Eddie Van Halen or whoever it was, even Jimi Hendrix. It, I saw that the reason they were Jimi Hendrix and Van Halen were because they came up with their own shit and did it in front of a lot of people and kept yeah. stuck with it. So to then model yourself after someone original to me seemed wrong, Jive. even at 10 years yeah. old, you know? Right. Even beyond Jive, though, just sort of like that it wouldn't work. <laughs> if I okay. thought it would work, I might have done it. Because Jive can kind of work as a half-ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've seen Jive. We've seen a lot of Jive. <laughs> Uh, did you ever put a studio around this four track? I did. I wound up, well, if you count the basement, yeah, you know, yeah, I hung yeah. up some blankets and recorded my friends and shit like that. And, uh, did you give it a name? No, I oh, never okay. had a name, man. It was just like, I'll bring my four track. Because it wasn't like, I mean, it didn't feel like a studio ever. Like, uh, like the way people seem to want to have this quasi-professional environment because yeah. you can buy all the shit now and make your yeah. like yeah. bedroom into something that has 48 tracks. I mean, I didn't even dare to call it a studio. I had a cassette four-track machine that like track four may or may not work that day. And I'm recording all the punk bands around like, you know, from Providence to Boston to Cape Cod and I'm driving around this shitty old car. And it's like, you know, so that's like a studio. Yeah, man, okay. you're just going to, or like their house, you know, whatever it is. And I'm bringing four mics for four dudes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> this mic's for the drums, man. So <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, man, the, the, I, it was just through all of that kind of thing that I wound up meeting good people too, like all around the country. And I, I realized that, that, what I liked the most about music was the recording of it. I kind of more than making it. More than making it. Well, more than making it night after night because I started to feel like a human jukebox. Ah, yeah. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah. Just playing play the piano. same thing. Yeah, play a piano concept. Feed me the scroll. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was like I wanted to be at the 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 moment of uh, inspiration. That was the part that I liked. Was like right at that moment where you see somebody go, aha. Yeah. And, and something great comes out that's the stuff that still gives me the chills the way like free your mind and your ass will follow yeah, did yeah. when I was 12 you know wow so you know and, it, and it, there's being on tour I mean correct me if I'm wrong you've done it more than me but I mean I did it for 15 years which was enough to get a handle on what it's about in the <laughs> punk scene you know in a van that smells like buffalo wings and feet and an ashtray it's like you know that it's too fucking genre specific too yeah. you like all kinds of music you're not going to hear any of it except the type of shit you're playing on that tour really yeah. you know if I'm playing in some heavy rock band there's not going to be some badass band that sounds like parliament playing, playing right after us yeah you know what I mean? So yeah, I yeah. felt like real homogenized. Like I got was getting trapped in this one inbred. little subsection. Yeah. Yeah, inbred little scenes everywhere. You'd say the same fucking 12 dudes that always have the same joke for you. <laughs> and I started to get sort of annoyed at that. And I wanted to get back in the studio. And we started the Book of Knots as a studio-only project. 
that was just going to like not pay attention to any kind of genre constrictions at all. And the connect with Studio G, because Tony told me a well, little bit you were hanging yeah. around. Yeah, I was hanging around. I was partners in a studio down the street, and we sort of would bump into each other, and Tony said, hey, why, don't you come, uh, why don't you come help me out with this one mix or whatever? You know, he knew I was like an engineer, the like hotshot kid in the neighborhood at the time or whatever. Now, how'd you end up in New York? Uh, quit touring and I'm going to live I in did, I was in I was in Kansas City and I had a recording studio out there called Trainwreck yeah. and that flooded in those big Midwest floods like I mean water up to my neck oh, like man. I watched it bubble up past my console I mean that was like my life you know what I mean it was like sure. everything that I cared about was in that room at that time and you know I watched just like sewage raw fucking sewage and like water like city water bubble up past the meter bridge and my tape machine oh, up man. over the console it was nasty man. Oh, man like Mississippi water you know yeah coming yeah in. big muddy muck man and so that, turd piss yeah 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 like all kinds of shit because uh, I mean we were in the building and it felt like we were in a boat that was going down because the water was going up and all of a sudden the mail slot there's like a fucking girder of water the shape of a mail slot yeah. blasting in through it like high PSI style, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Like so loud, and all of a sudden we feel the building go this big movement, you know. And we run upstairs and we're looking out the window that looks on the side that the water was coming from, and I don't know when there's a flood. I don't know if there's like dudes that have a kit that they like throw in logs and an upside down car. Like there's no trees anywhere <laughs> near there, but for some reason every flood I've ever seen looks the same. It's like muddy water with some weird logs, kind of <laughs> messing <Furniture. laughs> Yeah, some furniture and shit. So anyway, the flood kit was coming at us, and it's like there were cars bouncing off the side of our building and dumpsters and like yeah. big pieces of stuff and. We saw like stop signs all of a sudden disappear under the water, and it was because we found out later that it's because there were parking blocks like skidding down the street, like skimming down the sidewalks at you know 20 knots. Like crazy. It was a crazy place. So, Studio World in Kansas City was over for done. you. Done. <laughs> totally done. And I, it was like, it was such a sign of almost biblical proportions for me. I was like, I got to get the fuck out of the Midwest. I grew up on the ocean, man. You know, yeah. <laughs> like the water came and got me. When I tried to leave the water, the water came and got me. Coming home. Said, hey. <laughs> so, I, I just decided to, to get the hell out of the Midwest, basically. Come you found back a up. gig in Brooklyn. My my gal was moving to New York City. She's a textile designer. My wife, now wife, uh, she's a textile designer in in New York. So it was like there was a, a logical place for us to be because both of us kind of needed a a town like that to be a textile designer and a, a recording engineer producer person. You better be somewhere like L.A. or New York or right. you know, just wasn't going to happen in in West Yarmouth, Cape Cod. <laughs> <laughs> So you're down the street from Tony, you bump into him, and you end up working yeah. at Studio G. Yeah, man, like working working together. He kind of asked me to come in and help out. I guess the short version is that uh, Studio G wound up getting ripped off. Yeah, and, told uh, me that story. and so I kind of decided to get out of a partnership that was crumbling anyway, and bring in my gear and, and help out because we had Tony and I had sort of become friends at that point. I wanted to come help him out, so. That started. I kicked it off, and we've just like gone crazy since then. Studio wise, it's been good. Yeah, now we're gonna play some music here. When you were in your band mode, yeah, man. And uh, 
Uh, well, let's just play it now. And we'll explain it. All right. After. Okay.
So we just heard 4730 Birthday Cake by Iron Right Mangle, which was a, uh, a band with some childhood friends of mine, Rich Toomer and uh, David Silver. They played in a bunch of other bands at this point that, that are not really worth mentioning. 
Uh, <laughs> that was kind of our spastic demo from 93 or 94, recorded in a basement somewhere in Rhode Island. Um, right before that, we heard Let Me Take You to Chinatown by Glazed Baby. That was a band that I toured in for ages, and we were kind of notorious for stealing gas to so that the the rest of we could buy drugs with the rest of the money that we made at that point in our darker days in life so we would just leave the uh the gas pump off the hook we would call it so it wouldn't beep inside of the truck stop so they'd look up we'd just leave with the gas pump on the ground every single time and not pay it worked pretty good so anybody out there listening that's how you steal gas at a big gas station just leave don't don't put it back on the pump because then it beeps and the attendant looks up all right so right before that oh we're going like newest to oldest here it's uh this is the latest one it's called hero snake by players club which was me and guys from a band called hell no and unsane um we were we had that band for a couple of years actually uh it was dave from unsane uh jimmy paradise was the drummer he was in Hell No and Citizens Arrest and Rorschach and a bunch of bands like that. Seminal kind of ABC No Rio New York punk bands. Um, yeah, Players Club was uh, was a fun kind of scallywag bunch of people that was going on. Dave's on the first uh, the first Book of Knots record actually. He plays on one of the songs. So that was going on when we formed Book of Knots. Oh man, and. Uh Right now we're in the midst of the third book of knots and the concept space space air air and space actually see what's fun about all three of these like that people this is the special like you know we're gonna wrap it up for the first time here on your show it's uh that the third record will be the the final record and it's by land by sea and by air. But we included space in it because the whole thing, the whole concept is just about frontiers. It's about the idea of what's out there being much more exciting or frightening or whatever, what have you. It's more than what people actually found when they got there. Like sort of heading out from the East Coast or the pilgrims coming across and they hit dirt. And then started the westward expansion. You know, it was like all these frontiers, and we're, we're running out of frontiers on Earth. What do they call that? Manor, Manorette next to me. What's that? <laughs> what the hell is that? <laughs> is that a word? Or manifest or two destiny. words. Manifest destiny. So Manorette next to me. That was the biggest reason for westward expansion. Right, right. <laughs> So it's 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 man it's it's somebody had a mastectomy, and you you can't get you you have to leave the earth after having a mastectomy at this point because you're not going to find anywhere else to have a mastectomy. How did this happen? Maybe um, I, had, I got an ear infection. Yeah. Wow. So so yeah, it is. It's frontiers pushing. Yep. Just always pushing out past what's comfortable. It's why the music is uneasy. I mean, it sort of all ties into that. In it so perfectly ties into it that it's almost embarrassing. It sounds like some sort of committee decided on this idea for some sort of merchandising for a mall. 
you know, but it wasn't that deliberate. Target market. Yeah, yeah, we knew our target demographic, see? Um, but really, though, the, uh, this, this third record that with Air and Space, I, I, feel that, I feel pretty strongly that the concept of, of something out there, it's, it's tough to have that on Earth anymore. Like, yeah. where can't we go? Like, where can't you just go on Google Maps and see exactly Google Earth? You can see exactly what fucking Easter Island looks like sitting in your dorm room. Yeah. You know, or you can see exactly what downtown Tokyo, you can go down to the street level and look around. So it's like, where, where do the fucking unicorns live these days? Yeah. You know, where are the orcs? Right. You know, I mean, besides in Danish speed metal, <laughs> like where do the orcs live? <laughs> you know, so space. Yeah, they, to me, I mean, what's out there? Yeah. You could you could say that there's some sort of beastie living ten million miles away from us right now. Nobody can tell you you're wrong at this point. If you say there's some sort of beastie somewhere in downtown Tokyo, get it on yeah, you can figure out pretty quickly that that may not be true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it's um, it's an, an explorer. It is. It's, it's exploration. Adventure. It's a endeavor mm -hmm. further, beyonder, more vigor. Well, man, thank you so much for having me aboard. Yeah, man. We're so glad you. you're here. Much respect. And thanks for sharing uh, your music journey with us here. Thanks for sharing it with the people. I know you've got to get back to your knots. I do, I do. Because like, the I ship do. is adrift. Yeah, man. Things are <laughs> drifting right now. i got to okay. go grab the helm. Thanks, Joe. Nice respect. one, man. Good talking to you, brother. Stylish marriage
Daisy Bell 
my tin hat and crisis from by two foot yard from the upcoming record borrowed arms uh, you're listening to Carla here who's the fourth member of the Book of Not core crew Hi. and uh, <laughs> those are two of songs I'll try that not she's to got call. on music she's got singing I'll try so not she's to call suffering. too much <laughs> but I wanted to get her uh, perspective in here because she is part of the core of the Book of Not collective which reigns in other freaky personalities like I've been allowed to come on board a little bit here mm-hmm. in fact I just dropped some bass and brother Tony right now is putting his bass on the bass <laughs> yeah that that all being laid upon uh, the tracks by Matthias and Mo Stiano Mo playing a car buffer <laughs> right <laughs> yeah it's an ingenious way the <clears throat> way things are uh, put together yeah, I'm supposed group. to be coughing. Yeah, I know. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I got a coming down. I'm all nervous. But uh, what I want right here is to hip you guys to Carla's music, which brought her in a situation where she could uh, become a part of the core of Book of Not. And so how'd you get started with music? Oh. Maybe a little one? A wee one. <laughs> Indeed, a wee one. Um, my... I have a my mother's father was a Hungarian fellow, an engineer and a sculptor, um, and a violinist by hobby. And his sister was a violinist by profession, a, a Hungarian violinist named Erzbieta or Elsie Laszlo. And she, uh, very long long family story, but. I'll drop into the point where I enter the picture, which will cut off a lot of years of it. <laughs> um, she uh, she had some kind of inclination that maybe I had a musical bone somewhere in my body, and gave me a teeny little violin, um, and I picked it up and I. Why you were teeny? I was yeah, I was four, and I, four. I started. I was, well, I was about five when I actually started like okay. taking lessons. So I was about yeah, that was five. She had me sing something and said, I think. And she said to my parents, I think that she maybe has something, something for me. But there music. was a tradition in the family. Yeah, I mean, she, I think she, to my knowledge, she was the only professional music, musician in the family. Um, but lots of amateur, you know, musicians by hobby. My grandparents always uh, had chamber music parties and like just hanging out with their friends, reading string quartets was that was their version of the party and so from the time I was about eight I was playing like Mozart string quartets and Haydn string quartets with them and they're old they're old friends Um, which are some some of my kind of favorite memories and I think it's to this day why I like like small groups like why I I never would want to be a soloist like my, my my idea of music was like Hanging out in the living room, playing with a bunch of old old folks. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're in the pad playing. Did uh, you bring this to school or get some from school? Yeah, I don't, she gave me a violin, and I think my parents didn't really think it was. They didn't have an agenda. They weren't like concert parents, thinking, "Oh, this will be the next Heifetz." <laughs> um, but saddle her up <laughs> exactly. But pretty quickly, like I really dug it. I really yeah. got into it. And I was really serious. I was always like the girl with the furrowed brow and like yeah. the knit brow looking at things and trying. Like I was not. Rack, rack, rack. Yeah, I was, I was not so happy-go-lucky as a child. <laughs> okay. I mean, I was, but <clears throat> um, I really liked 
being alone and kind of focusing in on things. So for me, it was like a, it was a pretty instant fit. So it kind of went further than they expected it to. But once it did, like I did that whole thing of like going driving forever and ever every week, driving an hour and a half each way every week, sometimes twice a week for lessons. And because I outgrew the teachers in my hometown, and then yeah. had to drive an hour and a half away to Philly, and then then had to you know outgrew that teacher and had to drive an hour and a half to. Uh, Baltimore a couple two or twice a week and so it became this like it kind of snuck up and became this really in, in, integral part of my life um, amazing classical at this yeah point. yeah and you're doing gigs with orchestras no I mean well yeah to some degree actually or little quartets I did a couple like I've, got, I've totally forgotten about this stuff now but when I was about 11 I played with the Hershey Symphony <laughs> like a <Wow>. soloist <laughs> and started to do it yeah kind of did some orchestra gigs went to Europe and played with like the Netherlands Radio Chamber Orchestra with this other girl there's a Korean girl who came and lived with us for three years to study with my teacher then and she was super super serious classical uh, prodigy girl and uh, so most kids in my high school are you know in my while they were playing sports and it's like that age old tale like it's such a it's it's such a caricature of that life that it's almost embarrassing. But while everyone else is playing sports, I was practicing. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's kind of true, except sometimes I was watching TV and pretending to practice. But um, but yeah, it was, I went to summer camps for music and really did that whole thing. And then uh, at a certain point, towards the end of high school, I started to get that feeling of like, hmm, I don't think this is all there is. And to life yeah to, or to music or even to music oh, really okay. to music like I, it was such an important part of who I was and what I right, did right. And that but no bands it, no bands not till college okay not till college string quartets were my bands like orchestra was my bands yeah and it was there's such a uh, and so no composition probably actually that's not true I studied with this great weird old lady oh, when I right. was little I, I wrote when I was about nine or ten or eight to ten or something I took composition lessons with this little this lady in Lancaster I can't remember her name now it's killing me I can't remember it but I'll find out tonight I'll have to ask my mom if she remembers but this lady who was a composition teacher and she had like a big blonde bouffant and she had a studio in Lancaster with two grand pianos in it facing off like facing each other and she always wore like white go-go boots and this big white bouffant and had a a chandelier like some big candelabra chandelier on each sitting on each piano she was such a character and so I actually studied composition with her and then uh, wrote my first piece about my guinea pig Jester and <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's great because a lot of classical training that's the one weakness is writing their own songs yeah well, Where you get so three chords <laughs> there's, I'm telling you there's some like li- liberation and freedom from for in that way of approaching music being like here's a chord here's another chord here's a third chord if you need it you might not even need it now go write 12 billion songs and they're all going to be like there's something to that that is really liberating and like there's the classical model really has you revering these composers that were quote masters and you're never going to be as good as them and you're never going to sound as good as the recordings and you're never going to you know they were brilliant and they were doing this but you know there's this hero worship that I think could be really debilitating for classical musicians sometimes so I kind of escaped that mentality 
by the grace of some really influential people that I met early on that kind of started hipping me to some other concepts and other ideas and so I feel pretty lucky because I, I feel like I was kind of got the best of that world and then ran away with it <laughs> like, right, like, right. okay I got some tools no, there's, here and yeah, like, there's got to yeah. be stuff out especially <laughs> on the technical stuff yeah god they must yeah getting this thing with the instrument you probably never gain from just feeling around the dark and trying to service the tune but yeah. There's something about serving a tune. Yeah, yeah. There's and so some... college comes, and now you start bands. Yeah, or become um, uh, parts of bands. Yeah, there was a couple bands that I was involved in uh, in college. I also was started working with some other some people in the um, in the jazz department, which is kind of a fledgling new department. I went to Oberlin Conservatory. Yeah, they had just started the jazz department. And there was this great teacher named Wendell Logan that um, helped us create. A new, uh, uh, um, a kind of combined. It was half, half were well, a few classical students and mostly jazz students, but the whole idea was to explore kind of alternate ways of cre- of creating structure. So we did a bunch of Ornette Coleman tunes. We did a bunch wow. of like kind of um, graphic scores. We did a lot of like kind of taking melodies and stretching them out in all kinds of ways. Improvising. Was, yeah, yeah, but. In, in a way that wasn't wasn't totally uh, by the jazz book, like it wasn't like here here's the changes now you know learn all your modes and chords and, change, and and play on it. It was like more kind of just exploring different ideas of form and really cool. And he was great. He was such a really very really great teacher and, and kind of let us let us explore all we wanted. And so that was pretty great for me. And uh, I also had a, one of my best friends was a choreographer, and I started like writing scores for her and doing sound sound collages for her pieces and wow. doing all kinds of stuff with her that was like off the books and sure. just uh, kind of have our own events off campus that we couldn't get credit for, and so. But Oberlin, a pretty artistic school. Yeah. I played yeah. there. It's not like Ohio State or. Yeah, it's it definitely is, and also the the classical department really has has. I mean, I'm sure it's changed a lot since since I've been there it was a long time ago. But um, there's definitely the more conservative, like more tr- standard traditional classical minded thing there. And then there's a few teachers that are like always jabbing it, jabbing them, jabbing the rest of them in the in the, in the ribs, you know. This great teacher named Randy Coleman, who was so funny. He'd be like, listen, half of what you think you know about music is only because you've been socialized to think that. If you were from Micronesia and you listened yeah. to a Beethoven symphony, it wouldn't have the same emotional like pull in the same ways because you've learned what a minor chord means in your culture. You've learned that minor means sad. You've learned that major... Yeah. Like, he was <laughs> oh, people used to get so angry at him. <laughs> He, no, he's still kind of an stuff. ass kicker. He's really great. That's good stuff because people can't get look beyond the context. Yeah. And especially something like music, which is universal. Yeah. To go beyond context, it's still imprisoned by it because we're humans. Yeah. Even though the act of sound itself is bigger than humans. Mm-hmm. It's universal. Huh? Yeah. Before us, after us. Yeah. During us. Yeah, well, and that whole, during us. So that much perspective really has the ability to shake 
the foundation out from under a place like a music conservatory, right. you know, <laughs> which is Tenure based on like yeah, yeah, yeah certain fiefdoms of power. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, what about like what we just heard, the foot yard, <clears throat> the tin hat, these kind of things? So, that, that these are two groups that I'm in. Um, Tin Hat has been a group that I've, that I've started with a couple friends of mine a really long time ago when I first moved out here, like in 94 or 95. And it is, it's kind of the love it when more... the 90s is way back. <laughs> yeah. For someone like me, that's healthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was back enough. It wasn't no, way no, it much it is, it is, it is. Yeah. So it's a band you started yeah, way out of the... Uh, college experience well just out of the college experience actually so right just for just when I moved out here which is the beginning of 94 and it's more it's kind of a an old-fashioned group you know it's all instrumental it's all acoustic instruments most of them are from like the mid 1800s is <laughs> a little TD pump organ and uh, old Martin beautiful old Martin guitar um, acoustic Martin guitar and, and uh, my violin and um, uh, you know it's all all kind of older, old-fashioned. There's no, there's not any electronic anything to be had in this band, and it's, it's kind of more melody-based and kind of chamber music-based than anything else that I do. Um, and this song, do you know Bruno Schultz, the Polish? Have you ever seen the Street of Crocodiles? No. The Brothers Quay did this great, those animating, they're, they're, they're an animation duo, these brothers in yeah. England. Um, and they did a Stop really action. great... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Really beautiful, elaborate, kind of dark um, and playful all at once. They did a kind of interpretation of this book by Bruno Schultz called The Street of Crocodiles. Um, but Bruno Schultz was this beautiful Polish um, writer and artist and was killed in World War II. But before... That he had written a couple books and done. He was an art teacher, and um, uh, there's a book of his called Sanatorium Under the Sign of the Hourglass. It is such a brilliant, beautiful book. It's really he's one of the first surrealists, really. Oh he's, wow! Um, just beautiful, beautiful writing. So we made this whole record um, loosely based on his on his writings. So. You know, kind of abstract loose kind of way and there's a he mentions he mentions the the a couple lyrics for the song daisy bell and i just haven't quite put together the melody and the lyrics to <laughs> i'm very naive i'm just going to say that right now I'm incredibly ill-informed and very naive so <laughs> i was reading this book and we were trying to find different different scenes or different words or you know, phrases that would inspire, uh, like, different songs from on our parts. And so I took this little piece of the book where he talks about uh, of the lyrics of Daisy, Daisy Bell, and I researched the song and found all the lyrics, and still I didn't realize what song it actually was. Um, and, of course, it's that... The Daisy, Daisy, give me a to do. It's up to the age. Everyone knows this song, right. right? And so, but I hadn't heard the melody because it was a book. I was only reading the lyrics. Sure, I just sure. didn't put it together. So I sat for a couple hours and was like, I'm going to write 
I'm going to write the song that this goes to. And I totally rewrote the melody and the chords, and it became this really dark, really, like, oh, <laughs> like, no longer the happy-go-lucky song about the, you know, the entry of the bicycle into popular yeah. culture and the courtship of a, yeah, it's now, like, wow, you, Daisy better get a restraining order. <laughs> pretty, pretty bad. Six so that then we kind of did a, a little chamber orchestration of that tune so that was the first the first track off the Tin Hat record Amen the Two Foot Yard record um, which comes out like next month I think March 4th is called Borrowed Arms and the track is called uh, wow the lights just went out That's yeah really they nice. blow a circuit but we got it out we I want you in my bunker. <laughs> so, Crisis is a song that uh, the, the the other two people in the group are Marika Hughes and Shazad Ismaili, and uh, so uh, this is a song that we wrote together. We were really often we kind of we will each write something separate and bring it into the group, and then we'll kind of work it out work it up as a group and this was one of the times when we actually wrote it like from the beginning to the end we wrote it all to, all together and, and how'd you get this band together? this band it's more recent this started right? yeah it's more recent um, probably it's like not way back ago. in the 90s no it's more like way back in the aughts <laughs> yeah is that what you call these? the aughts I think we're in the aughts okay yeah. I don't know what you call these things <laughs> Arts. Okay, so it was way back. Yeah, and it started as a solo thing. It started because everything. Yours. Yeah, it started because everything I do is a collaboration. Right. Everything like Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum, Tin Hat, like, Book of Nonsense. I've seen this. People think of Violet as something you just bring on board later, huh? <laughs> well, no, it's more just because I. Or your per- persona? I think it's more about my persona okay. than it is about the violin, because. But I've seen other violin players like we're not going to put the thing around. Violin yeah, <laughs> yeah. Put the the like icing, Petra, the melodic you know. icing. Yeah. Yeah. She's always added on as like some garnish. Yeah. Yeah, just just a little something to make it sweet. Yeah. yeah. So this was two foot yard started out as like my um, my experiment in not in finding out what part of all my collaborations actually is me like what do I sound like on my own like I know working with Nils and Dan and the, the rest of Sleepy Time and working with Mark Orton and, and Ben Goldberg and those guys in Tin Hat and like it's it's so fun because they push me in directions that I wouldn't find on my own and they like kind of stretch your capacity for expression to places you wouldn't if you if it was more like just writing in your journal you kind of have certain patterns and yeah, certain sure. things you do and like so so I've always loved doing collaborations but I, there was a point at which did I was, you meet the sleepy times when I first moved out here do you remember the mud women yeah Lisa Faye Beatty mud yeah. she's actually still our dancer's housemate the yeah, mud women yeah my <laughs> dad was like W-I-M-M-I exactly exactly so when I first moved out here, I got a bartending job at the Covered Wagon and on down on Folsom yeah, and yeah. 9th, Folsom and 11th, something yeah, like that. By Slims. Uh, yeah, it's like a couple blocks down from yeah. Slims. And uh, I was just 21 and I got a bartending job and there was this girl there, Lisa Faye, who was running sound there and she was a sound engineer and, and 
you know, ran all the shows. And I met her and became really fast friends with her. And still, she's one of my closest friends to this day. And um, she, we did a lot of playing together. And she said, hey, you got you got to sit in with my group, the Mud Women. we got a couple gigs coming up. You should come and come play. So I went and played with them for a couple shows. And one of them was a show at the Kennel Club, I think it was then. Yeah, yeah. Now it's the Independent and it changed it names a bunch of times. The IS Club, I played there when it was at, and it was called Justice League. Yeah, it was the Jamaica might have been the yeah, dance club it might have been that. that. Yeah, yeah, down in Divisadero, exactly. And you opened up, yeah. Across the street was Brother in Law's number exactly. two, Great Ribs, and even exactly. the Church of St. John Coltrane. It was for right a while. on that block or down the block, something yeah, like that. Yeah, a couple yeah. blocks down. Yeah. So we did a show there, and they were sharing the bill with, with Idiot Flesh. And Idiot Flesh. Was I was like fresh out of college. I had run screaming from classical music. I mean, I loved. I grew up like the, the music that moved me most in that world was like Bartok string quartets, which if you haven't checked them out, some of the greatest music I saw on the planet. They're Pierre just, Boulet to uh, conduct the magical Mandarin. Oh yeah, Mandarin. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Um, yeah, it's so. Also, that dynamic. I don't, I'm not used to it. Mm. And here's all these not sixty great musicians. Yeah. But then when they let go and let him get hold of it, oh, yeah. you could tell they were fighting him at first, and then he got it in the whole yeah. thing. And it's for a me to be thing, part man. of watching yeah. that and feeling it was like, wow. Yeah. As much as almost a little Richard Gig or something, mm-hmm. it was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, technical people bringing together some really, really, really raw so emotion. We, we were just listening on the, in the car a couple of days ago, Matthias and I were listening to these recordings of the Arditi String Quartet playing. Uh, Ligeti, the first Ligeti string quartet, and it is it is as raw and as visceral and totally kick ass as any punk rock tune you've ever heard. I mean, yeah. it's this kind of idea that classical music is more like inherently more like Stayed refined is really that's just a matter of taste. Like, yeah, there's composers that do that, and then there's like and there's players that do that, and then there's players and composers that are looking for that same yeah. raw thing that anyone else is looking. You know that anyone just did, like there's people doing for. the rock and roll. That's pretty boring. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very staid. Yeah, yeah, it's all the spirit of it, and this amazed me. And the Bartok, just to begin with those compositions, They're which so I would talk to some guy who knows about classical music. He said he borrowed a lot. He'd go and listen to folk songs. He was so one the, of the circle first. goes around. Oh, no, he was one of the first. I mean, there was other people clearly who did that, but um, he really he traveled all throughout Transylvania and through Hungary and that part of the the world and and collected folk songs and um, categorized uh, cataloged them. Has a huge archive of folk songs from all these different towns, and at that time communication wasn't what it is today. So things were really specialized from one town to the next. So. It wasn't like everyone knew the same song, the same Britney Spears song from the radio. Like it didn't. So, it, he kind of got all the details of the different cultures, and um, and then he'd take those rhythms and those melodies and work them into right, right. into his music. And beautiful it's stuff. So it's really amazing. That yeah, was a, a beautiful thing. And the, the interaction between a conductor and a band. I, you know, I'm not used yeah. to it. The closest thing is like 
playing in Iggy's band. Yeah. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah. And so was Perry Farrell, mm-hmm. in the porno for pilots. Both yeah. those gentlemen. <laughs> they know what they want. <laughs> and, and, but it's weird because at the other, at the same moment, they've got this incredible abandon. You think that they're totally yeah. oblivious to everything because the, the yeah. crazy thing. But then they're hearing every note. Yeah. And right. They know where. Yeah. You'll look back at me. Yeah. Fast. <laughs> That's the thing when you like people that can walk that line between yeah. like absolutely letting loose and still somehow in some way like holding it all in one container and like but yeah it's incredible duality a dangling duality yeah <laughs> so yeah Carla Boslich has that too she, for sure yeah, she rides that that same like the world's constantly falling apart around her in just the perfect way so that everything's like in flux and moving and ready to like so you know Carla She's, she's from Pedro. She's from my town. I know her since she's like sixteen. Wow! And she's had it since she was young. Yeah. This way of singing and mm-hmm. persona, no matter what music she's doing, the Carla comes out. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so you meet the Sleepy Times from doing these Mud Women gigs. Yeah, we did this one gig, and I was. And it is kind of a collect. They bring a lot of cats on, right? That yeah, but for sure, back in those days, especially, yeah. they really. They really had the... Kind of circus a little bit. Yeah, but also, like, carnival. you really listen to the music. Like, yeah. a lot of... Not all of them, but a lot of the compositions are really, um, really full of detail. And, like... Oh, yeah, not yeah, yeah. like... But they're still really, like, intense emotionally. And they're still really, like... They're, they're really focused and clear and, like, bizarre and, like, full of great sounds and... And I didn't know that that existed outside of Bartok Quartets. You know what I mean? So I saw them and I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> okay. I need, this is, these are people I need to find. I need to like to know these guys. And at the same time, like I had been warming up backstage and didn't really know anyone, whatever. And I was playing. I was just kind of fooling around. And Nil, when Nils tells a story, he has the opposite side of it from what I have. He's like, yeah, we were like in the other, in the other dressing room and we heard, hear this like weird violin stuff like, like a violin played like we've never heard it played like kind of some kind of Bartokish improv improvised thing we're like who is that <laughs> and then then I you know played with the mud women and so that was kind of the first time we like eyed each other sideways like wait a minute who's that <laughs> that's that's kindred spirit yeah. <laughs> so I mean it took years before we actually were then well then I joined Charming Hostess as a singer and they, those guys were in Charming Hostess. Right. And then finally, years later, when Idiot Flesh called it quits, we we started Sleepy Time out of the ashes of what had been Idiot Flesh. So that's the short story. Yeah. <laughs> and then through that, uh, the Book of Knots, Matthias, yeah. Joel, Matthias, Joel, Tony. Yeah, they, they'd been going at it already. I think Matthias wasn't long out of school and I moved to New York, and um, uh, they had started, had this idea of just doing this this studio-based, no-pressure kind of thing, which is what I love about this band so much. Like, it has no ambition in that, like, you know... Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not driven by ambition at all. <laughs> it's got a certain kind of drive, but it's not based in ambition, which no. I really love. Um, and... Uh, Sleepy Time did a tour with Skeleton uh, Skeleton Key. Key, which was Matthias's band back then, and I'm sure he told you the story about the yeah. rolling of the van and the, 
the van becoming the shape of a trapezoid all together wrong. And they all lived. Everyone and got in the school bus. Got in the bus, yeah. So that was kind of the beginning of that. Um, and uh, then uh, I started to go to visit Matthias on the East Coast now and again. A couple times he was working on stuff with Tony and Joel, and I'd stop in the studio. And they'd be like, you know, as they are now still, anyone who walks in is fair game. You just put a set of headphones on them and tell them to go. <laughs> like, I, well, what do you want me to do? I don't care. Go. Go. I call Senga something here. Um, and so soon, what did I know? I was actually in the band. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I think also it's like the, they cover a lot of ground between the three of them. Yeah. But the part that they don't cover is the more like melodic stuff that, that is what I bring to the table, like the violin and the yeah. kind of theremin vocals and the, like the, the kind of smooth, smooth over the top of all their demolition and destruction is, some kind of like teeny silver lining at the edge. It's kind of so. I think I, you know, that I think that's in some ways it was a good fit because there was a thing that I brought that they didn't have already. Yeah, and, some estrogen and, too. Yeah, exactly. And that never hurts, <laughs> except it hurts me like once a month. <laughs> it never hurts them though, unless I get really crappy. <laughs> Cara, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. Aww. Truly. I'm at the Oakland airport now, waiting for a plane to take me to Long Beach airport and then on to Pedro. Just as wet down there as it is up here, but I still think I'll get home today. I do want to give a big thank you to the Book of Knots folks, Tony, Joel, Carla, Matthias. They're most righteous and generous for having me aboard there for two days in the studio. Let me uh, sail along on their third endeavor there. And I hope I was able to help them. With some bass, some spiel, some piano plucking even. And it was great uh, to have them do spiel on my radio show too. This has been the uh, January 23rd, 2008 edition of the Watt from Pedro show. Keep your powder dry.